we finished up our, uh, our, the portion of Isaiah. I know I enjoyed it, and I think all of us here enjoyed it, where we, we, we did a, a sampler of corresponding into its mate book in the scriptures. And we know that it is no coincidence that Isaiah is a miniature Bible. But looking at the fullness of Isaiah, we started out understanding who Isaiah was. I think in this book, out of all the years now that we've been doing this overview of the Bible with every book, I think it was this book that I spent more time at the beginning really ramping up on who Isaiah was, what the book was about, the time frame of the book, this mod dispensational model, because it really this book is so feature-rich in, 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 in an end-to-end -end coverage of God's plan the way God works with Israel, the way God works with us, especially the coming of Christ, how he was going to come, who he was going to be, you know, both both priest and, and also, uh, you know, the king of the Jews and, and also our savior and all. The, I mean, it, it, this book has got to be one of the most amazing books, one of the most, and I said it to Rachel before, one of the most pregnant books with, with so much compressed into it. No wonder it's a miniature Bible. And so one, one of the things, so we, we did that. We did a sampler of, of, uh, of a few books in the Old Testament as compared to their mate chapters in Isaiah. And then we did the four chapters in Isaiah that mate to the four Gospels the last time we met. And, and, and I know we, we found some amazing things. So what I wanted to do here is, is uh, as we're in the home stretch of this study, is to complete our time by sampling some of the key truths and prophecies that we touched upon. But we really want to look at how they're, they're set up in this book. Um, uh, and, and really, again, this, uh, it is amazing because the, this is the book, and we've discussed this before, that the Jews, who are supposed to be the people of the book, and they are, right, that they are so vehemently against Jesus Christ as their Messiah that they actually rip a chapter out of the book. I mean, they do that. They physically rip Isaiah 53 out of the book. A lot of them do that. Uh, matter of fact, remember when I used to teach at Delia Baptist Church, the old woman Joyce, she, when she lived in Sharon, Massachusetts, which is a predominantly Jewish area, and she used to, I think it was babysitting, right, for a Jewish couple at the time. And she even said she knew that the person she worked for tore Isaiah 53 out of the Bible. So there was a case point right there. So it, it's, it's such a wonderful book that if you hate Messiah or if you hate the truth, this is one of the best books to hate, <laughs> Right? And, 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 and if you love the scriptures, you love the truth, and you love Messiah, this is why this book is also one of the most poignant books in the scriptures. And so it's also one of the most complex. Um, but anyway, so what it holds. There's a book, and I, didn't, I haven't read the book, but I was looking for certain quotes from, from authors, and I looked some of them up. And I found a book called Themes from Isaiah by a, a gentleman named Ronald Youngblood. And I, I looked up a little bit about, about the book. And it's a book really geared for, maybe not so new Christians, but Christians who are really just looking for an overview of this, of more, of, more than a commentary, but less than a real in-depth study. And so one of the things he wrote was this, out of, out of other books, themes, of, themes from Isaiah. And I thought this was an interesting quote from the book, and I'm going to read the quote. The measure of any book's greatness is not to be looked for in the quantity of its lines or paragraphs or pages, but in the quality of its contents. And that's a fairly straightforward thing, and we, we can understand that in any book. That's a good, a good opening argument here. The book of Isaiah is great because of the breadth of its teachings, which we just talked about, because of the importance of its message, very important, because of the sweep of its subject matter. And that's what I'm trying to get my hands around, in, you know, to compress this into an overview. And, he, and he, he has a, an analogy here. He says, The Colorado River has many gorges, but none is so magnificent as the Grand Canyon. It's 280 miles long, 4 to 18 miles wide, and over a mile deep. It beckons to the visitor to marvel at its beauty and plumb its depths again and again. In much the same way, the Old Testament has many prophetic books, but none is so magnificent as Isaiah, 66 chapters long, and thus a miniature Bible in itself, which we proved. And so obviously it's nothing that I found on my own. It's a proven fact. But it's a miracle. And he says here, the final sentence is, it beckons to the reader to reveal in its beauty, to, sorry, to revel in its beauty and plumb its teachings again and again. And I thought that was a good description of how I feel about this book anyway. So we just don't have time to, to, to delve into it. But it's amazing to me, again, how this and many other 
Old Testament books. Christians don't really, I don't want to say they don't care about it. They don't even know enough to care about it. And, and I think that's a, that's a tragedy. It, it is a tragedy, but we know that. Um, here's an overview of key truths and prophecies featured within the book of Isaiah. And this is how we'll wrap up. We're going to try to get through what we can tonight. We'll definitely finish up the next time. And then it's on to the book of Jeremiah. Okay. So here are some key, key facts. And, and I, I enjoyed finding a bunch of these. I found a, a good document that had a bunch of them in there, but I, I expanded them and, and, and looked at more of them. And it was really, really a good, good, good way for me to get this. Um, but anyway, here's the first thing I wanted to bring out. There were three significant occasions in the New Testament where Isaiah was quoted. The first occurred in the synagogue. Now, we know, matter of fact, we just talked about that at church this uh, past Sunday at the church we go to. The second was in a desert, and the third was in a prison. And we're going we're gonna to sample these by Paul, but listen to this. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you probably know where this is going, right? Um, but while you turn there, I'm going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 4, uh, verses 15 through 21. I think it's 21. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to read that while you just look at those first two verses, and you'll see where this is going. And the, the two verses I, I sent you to in Isaiah. So Luke, 4, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 15. Okay. Um, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, of course, talking about Jesus. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is the, the passage I just pointed you to, right? And, and read, it, read the passage as, as in Isaiah as I read what Jesus actually said there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set, liberty, set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. And then he stopped. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. Isn't that interesting that he stopped right there? Because if you're looking at this passage, you see there's halfway through verse 2, he stopped. And it says here, And all of the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Like, remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials? Mm -hmm. I can just imagine everybody stopping and staring at him. Who, what manner of man is this? And remember, in other places where he read from Scripture, they say he read with such authority. Something different when he read the words of, of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Well, because he wrote it. He's the God of the Old Testament. But it, it was probably amazing to be a Jew, to be a learned Jew, and yet to hear him quote these scriptures. And they really weren't quite sure who he was. And he grew up among them, right? So now reading the same passages from Isaiah 61 and 62, and, and we'll, we'll move on here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped halfway as he was quoting verse 2. Um, and he didn't complete the words, because that was for, for later. So he's showing right there, this is the point, and, and this is the thing. Because the, the rest of the verse, verse 2 in Isaiah 61 is, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now we know that all of that has to come yet. What I did also, and I didn't list it here, but I think it's a good exercise. If you read the whole of chapter 61 from that point forward, it goes on and on and on in detail about the day of vengeance and later on and, and the purposes behind it and all that stuff. I mean, so if, if you think about it, Jesus obviously purposely stopped there because, he, as he said, he didn't come the first time to judge the world. He came to do what he just said, to announce the gospel, to bring the good news. And, and that is the legacy we have. But Isaiah wrote it all down. So that's why we aren't here, but we're here to, 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 to bring many as many as Jew to the Jew first and the Gentile, right? Because that day is coming from 62, Isaiah 61, verse 2 and B and onward, where 
you are going to be, well, have hell to pay, right? And that's and Jesus is also going to be the one to tread the wine press of God's wrath. And so I thought that that's wonderful. I mean, to, 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 for a Christian not to know that, I think they're missing, and you think too, but I, I think it's critical because it's these things that explain really who Jesus is, his heart, his mind, his character, his point of view, as, as the God of the Old Testament, but to, to really detail why, these, why he said these things and what it really means. The complete setting of Jesus' purpose is coming the first time and the second time to bring in his kingdom to sit on the throne of David in the final 1,000 years of the earth's history as what? The king of the Jews and the final king of kings and lord of lords on the earth. And, and that's again, if you understand these things as we do, right? How can anybody argue? And today, look at how many people are arguing. Pre-trip, post-trip, no-trip, right? Pan-millennial, no-millennial. It's like, come on, man. Really? Really? There's no excuse not to know this unless you're a baby Christian. There's no excuse. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not even optional. Anyway. Actually, I'm I, I, looking here, and I did actually... So you, you feel that there's certain clarity on exactly when the tribulation and rapture and all of that? Is that what you're... Well, exactly when it's going to happen? No, but, no, but at the cadence before. of how... It, absolutely, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, what I'm going to do is, because I, I had forgotten, but I did write it down. I did put the scripture in here. I'm going to read you the rest of chapter 61. So remember, where we stopped here is... The day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, right? And then he, then that, he didn't read that part, but he stopped just before that. But let's read on as if we're going to complete the thought. So this is now that future part that you were just talking about, right? So let's continue. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them, un, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He's not talking about Gentiles here. He's talking about the restored Israel, the remnant, which is going to happen. The tribulation, remember what Daniel says about the tribulation. It is the focus of Israel. Its focus is God's turning his attention back to Israel, right? And that is to what? To make a completion of the transgressions, right? To make an end for sin. Isn't that what Daniel says? That's what it's about. And we also know that in Zechariah, it says in, in the, he, he came to, to tear us apart. And on, the, and, and on the third day, he will come and heal us. This is all part and parcel of the same cadence of how this has to work out. It has to work that way. And that's the point. Let me read on. Chapter, uh, verse 4. And they shall build the... Now, this is millennial, right? Listen to this. This is also not only, well, this is when Israel comes back for the second time, but listen, listen to also, this is a dual thing, I think, here. I mean, if I'm sure of it. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers, now listen to this. This is millennial. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressings. Who is going to be the head of the nations in the millennium? It's going to be Israel. That's not going to happen. This stuff is not going to happen now. We do not see people waiting in line to help Israel, to do these things for her. Listen to this, verse 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast yourselves. I'd say that's the millennium, right? It ain't happening now that way. Verse 7. For your shame you shall have double the blessings in the millennium, right? For the restoration of Israel. And I mean, the, the full restoration of Israel. And for your confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be upon them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth. Remember what but what God has against Israel. He's, they're not allowing him to direct their work. They're doing it themselves. This is part of the being blind and everything else that's going on and what they were judged for. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord has blessed. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me, clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As now, again, as a bridegroom decked out, uh, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns, adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. That is millennial. So you, so you see, Jesus, the cadence of all of this, right? The first coming to preach the good news, to preach the righteousness and, and to, bring all, to bring release people from the prisons, right? Then, after the church age, vengeance, judgment, and then the restoration of Israel as the head of the nations and the remnant, knowing him as Messiah, being God's crown jewel in the millennial kingdom. It's all right here in this one chapter. So let's move to the second part. It was quoted, we saw Jesus quoted. Let's talk about in the desert. Now, you remember in the desert part of it? Who was in the desert when they were reading the book of Isaiah and they didn't quite have a clue of what they were reading? Remember who it was? I don't, I don't think ever gave his name, but he was an Ethiopian eunuch. Right? And the whole, well, I'll read you. The, if you want to go to, well, I'll read you from Acts 8, chapters 26. Uh, uh, sorry, Acts, I always get chapter and verse mixed up. Chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem into Gaza, which is the desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So this man had some stature. He wasn't just a bloke like me or anybody. He, he had some stature. Who had charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship was returning and sitting in the chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. What a coincidence, right? And the Holy Spirit's telling Philip, just as the Holy Spirit sends us, have you ever been sent to somebody where you know, like to, to witness to them or to talk to them or whatever, Christian or, or, or non-Christian? And it just happened to be, you know, the timing was right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. So this is an example of that. But he happened to be reading the book of Isaiah at that point, at that moment. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join yourself to the chariot. Come alongside him, basically. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? What a great question. It's like, how do you open a conversation with an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah, the Bible, and you're coming up alongside him. He probably doesn't know why you're doing it. And it's like, hey, how are you doing? Now, let me see. How do I start a conversation here? Hey, what are you reading? But he says, do you understand it? Isn't that interesting? And he said, how can I, now listen to this, except some man should guide me? Now, that's a very, very astute person. Because a lot of people would be reading something and you say, you might say to them, it could be technical, it could be anything. Do you understand what you're reading? No, but I'll study some more and find out about it. Or no, but or, or yes, you know, just leave me alone. Or, or but but this was a wise response. I need someone to help me understand this. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So he already had an idea that this guy was going to help him. And he said, "How can I?" Okay, and, and verse uh, verse thirty-two, the place of the scripture which he read was this. Now we're going to go right to where he was reading. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And, a, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation of his judgment, in his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now we know, we know exactly who he's talking about. But this is a, look how long this quote is from Isaiah. It, to me it's amazing. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, basically, I guess, of whom speaks the prophet. Now, reading that, he's actually saying, is he speaking of himself? Is Isaiah speaking of himself? Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> or of some other man? Good question. Good question. 
Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Remember when Jesus, it just came, just, I just thought of it, where Jesus says, and I forgot where it is in the scriptures, Rachel, you, one of you might remember, but when he says, uh, I think it was Peter, he goes, um, who do men say that I am? And some people think you're Elijah, some people think you're this, some people think you're that. He says, well, who do you say that I am? He says, well, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And he says, you only know that because it was given to you to know. Well, look at the same cadence here. This man was curious to find out who he was reading about, but you and I can read this and figure out. We know exactly who who's Isaiah was talking about here. How many hundreds of years ago? And so he needed to know, and Philip was right there to tell him. And so he says in verse 36, And they went on their way, uh, and they came unto a certain water. And listen to this. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What is stopping me from being baptized? I mean, that, what a conversion experience. And he even knew the ordinance of baptism at that point. I don't understand how all that works. We don't know how long they talked either. But if he preached Jesus to him, he must have been in the context of the gospel. What must I do to be saved? Right. Right. Right, but it's, it had to have been said because the eunuch all of a sudden knows about water baptism and says, okay, I am ready. Now, did you see that email? I sent it out last week about Trump and Dr. Dobson, who I used to have a lot of respect for. Focus on the family, the old doc, mm-hmm. saying, oh, he's a Christian. Right. Really? Based on what? Uh, based on what? Now, that was, that's a side note, but, but think of this, right? Why aren't we allowed to ask somebody? Why, look, at, look at the evidence here. This man's ready to be baptized. So in that email, remember I said there was some, there was some acid test points, right? Does he talk about scriptures? Is he excited or does he talk about his salvation? Does he talk about Jesus? Does he talk about the gospel? Is he excited about and, and knows that it, the nation must return to being a biblically sound, a biblically based nation with a biblical worldview? Did he ask him? Have you been baptized or are you going to be baptized? The public pronouncement, right? Did he ask Trump, have you, like it says in Romans, right? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and indeed the Savior? Without asking one of those questions, very simple questions, he, he says he's a baby Christian. And in the article, if you, if you looked at the email and you've linked to the article, he says, Dr. Dobson says, oh, yeah, well, he's still a baby Christian because he still uses the term like, right. And, and he says he uses terms like hell and stuff. What? Who, really? So I would say to Dr. Dobson, who has bewitched you? It's like those people who are coming to this big old event this Saturday down at the Washington, D.C., the, 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 the National Mall. That is disgusting. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Pomo, the, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, I'm telling you, I'm not even going to get into it here. But I looked into the background of this, and there's more than the meets the eye. It's just not just a, a, a foolish economical thing. There's more here. There's an occultic thing, because that whole reflecting pool is, is basically built about Osiris and that phallic symbol. And these people, I'm telling you, it's more than meets the eye. I guarantee you. Guaranteed. And these people who are driving this, either they don't know what they're doing or they do know what they're doing and they're acting like you know, the, the, sheeps in, or the wolves in sheep's clothing to get these people there. Now, I'm not saying anything bad's going to happen there. But this is softening them and softening them and turning them over slowly to a depraved mind in a satanic, culty, Christian-like Catholicism can't we all get along thing while they're being brought together in a single place for the spiritual slaughter. That's what this is about. Right in front of the phallic symbol of Osiris and the, and the capital dome, which is the pregnant belly of, of Isis, bringing in the beast. That's what this is about. If you studied the occult, and I have, this is what this is all about. This is what these people want. But this eunuch is showing us here the true conversion of somebody who wants to do the right thing. So if Trump is or anybody's converted, you should be able to ask them a question and see some evidence. And they say, oh, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Right. What is, and what does it mean to know Christ, right? Because you could ask a Catholic the same question, and the Christ that they know is not the Christ that you and I know. So they'll tell you about the Christ they met, the dead, lanky, 
emaciated thing hanging on that cross whose physical flesh you get to eat every Saturday. Oh, I'm sorry, Sunday. Well, sometimes Saturday. Come on. Anyway, don't get me started. But anyway. So, now, listen to, so we're going to wrap this up. It says, um, uh, he, he wants to be baptized. And in verse 37, and Philip said, listen to this. This is great. If you believe with all your heart, you may. Interesting. Which means he's saying, if you don't believe with all your heart, you're probably better off not doing right. this. Good advice. And, 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 you know, you've seen, I don't know if it, if it happened when any of you were baptized, but even when I was baptized, they asked the question, you know, do you believe in Jesus Christ as, as your Savior? Now, again, it was in that, the old world by Church of God, but, I mean, at least they asked qualifying questions before they dunked you. And we got counseled with baptism, too. Anyway, so he said, if you believe in all your heart that you may, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So we know what is the spirit of Antichrist. What is it? Any spirit that says that Jesus Christ, or denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So we see all of the evidence here. This guy ain't lying. And they didn't come with the flesh. Yeah, right, exactly. So, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. So he did what he had to do, Philip, and he went on his way rejoicing. Isn't that great? So that's the whole thing right there. This is the whole thing right there. So now we see Isaiah, Isaiah actualized in the desert. Now, we know that Isaiah 53 is a major chapter in this book, and we, we talked about that because it so succinctly speaks of, of the word of, and Jesus Christ as the Son of God, right? Um, but, so, I'm going to read to you, because remember, it doesn't detail here, exact, it shows you the scripture that he read, but it doesn't detail where in the book of Isaiah he read. So I'm going to read that in context. So you know what the Ethiopian was reading. So Isaiah 53 Verses 1 through 12. If you want to go there, Isaiah 53, verse 1, and we'll start there. And then we're going to go read, and we're going to go read right to the place where the eunuch read from, because we have the quote. So let's put some context around it, right? Like we did with the same quote, the two verses that Jesus, or the one and a half verses that Jesus uh, read. But we read the rest of the whole thing to get the context. And we saw the future laid out right, right there. And what point Jesus was at in, the, in his own timeline because he stopped in this first coming and he didn't continue to read because he hadn't come the second time yet in the millennium. We just read that. So let's try to do the same thing here. I think this is, this is great. I, when I was doing this, I was like, yeah, this floats my boat. So Isaiah 53, verse 1. If it hasn't been ripped out of your Bible, it's a good thing you don't have a Jewish Bible. <laughs> Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root of a dry ground, he has no form nor comeliness. And when, sh when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And, he, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. They're basically saying he was being punished directly by God for his own, his own sins. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Now imagine you're the Ethiopian eunuch reading this and you're not quite sure. That's why, who is this he's reading about? Is this Isaiah talking about? Just imagine, put yourself in that chariot for a moment. You're not quite sure. This is profound things to read about, and yet you don't know who this Isaiah is even talking about. What does this mean? And somebody comes alongside you can explain. So now you're reading this, okay? And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we move to what the Ethiopian was reading. So we'll... He did. All right. Yeah. So didn't he have the gift of the Holy Spirit because 
he was seeking. So the Holy Spirit at that point, is that his job to help but, give you clarity? And well, not just, yeah, but how he does it is key. That's a very good point, right? The first thing the Holy Spirit did for you and me and him, right, is to give us even curiosity because right. we're all spiritually dead. Yes. The book of Isaiah would not have meant anything to me before God started calling me. But remember, it's not just the calling is the beginning. That's why he said, I need someone to help me learn. That's what this is all about. The Holy Spirit just doesn't give us knowledge like right. that. But what the Holy Spirit does... Truth. Right, exactly. And then when we're given the truth by someone who has it, he helps us recognize it versus error, right? And then it makes it stick and make sense. And I think that's the growth. And that's why we as Christians have to walk out and work out our salvation yeah. and understand growing in the grace and knowledge... And because even for us who are seasoned Christians, right. we you still just aren't daily. given stuff. But it's it, like daily exactly. But what I, what this holy, what the Holy Spirit does, because you notice that uh, here's another point I just thought of. It makes it clear that after Philip gave him the skinny on this most important thing that he was reading, he was taken away right away. He wasn't his continuous tutor. He never saw him again. But the Holy Spirit started working in this mind to start like a seed. The seed was planted. The watering and the fertilizing and all those things and the sun and whatever you want to call it now started working. So now this Ethiopian started thinking and musing on it. You know what it's like. Yes, you ever think of scripture and then all of a sudden the light bulb will come on and yes. say, I've read this a number of times but it, I it never really sense. saw that before. Or I've made sense but I never saw this particular piece. So the way it works with us, I'm sure it was the beginning of growth and that's so that's I think details how the Holy Spirit works. So yeah. at, at what point Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All in order, everything in its time. It was probably way before that because he was reading the book of Isaiah, which means he must have been reading it before because he was sitting in his chair and he could have. Right, at that point. Now, also, he was Ethiopian, so did he have Jewishness in him? I mean, they, because of King Solomon, right, and the Queen of Sheba and all, and all that, right? They, they knew Scripture. They had the Old Testament. So we don't know what he already knew of the Old Testament. So he may have been just reading the Old Testament, or he may have, because he had a copy of it, and, you know, copies of the Scriptures back then weren't easy to come by, but he was very wealthy, you could see. So he had an authorized copy. And so, I mean, yeah, there's many ways to look at this, the entry point. But, but the whole, however it happened, Philip was sent at just the right time to explain that he was reading about Jesus and explain who Jesus was. And his guy was ready to accept the truth. And he said, he says, I believe that he's the son of God. I mean, you know, I don't know how long it took him to get that, but it was, a, it was this critical mass, right? So it's amazing. So anyway, so now we just read that, that he will be smitten and born, for, born our griefs. And he's now the Ethiopian, imagine you're the Ethiopian reading all that. And here is the place that he, we, we find the quote he was reading when Philip's coming alongside him. Verse uh, 53, Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened out his mouth. Now, can you imagine this man reading this? It's like, who would actually do this? This is pretty severe. And it's very descriptive of someone who's suffering and being beaten and not defending himself. And is the prophet talking about himself? Hmm. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And now the rest of Isaiah 53. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Could this possibly be a man? Could this possibly be Isaiah? I mean, you know. 
He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Hmm. For he shall bear their iniquities. Can a man do this? Can a man do that? Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. For the, now, to me, that puts goosebumps on me because I'm just putting myself in the Ethiopian's position, and this, this scroll that he read from was exactly these words. And it was when he was reading those two previous verses that Philip came alongside. But did he read the rest of this before he saw Philip? I mean, I mean, I would wonder, who is this? Well, let me help you understand. How can I understand that? So anyway, okay. Here is now when um, Paul was in pr uh, prison. Here's this, the third quote, which is pretty phenomenal too. We're going to read from Acts 28, 24 to 27, which corresponds to Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Okay, so we'll read that. So if you want to read in Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, I can read the Acts portion. However you want to do it's fine with me. So I'm going to read Acts 28, 24 to 27. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that Paul had spoken one word, well, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, and say, Hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you shall see, yet not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and the ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, or they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Hmm. Okay. Three of Scripture's greatest salvation invitations are found in Isaiah. So here we go. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. And we read this I mean, when we first started looking at the, the wonderful things of Isaiah back when we started, because this is in chapter 1. But the greatest salvation invitations... now. I, as a Christian, would not have thought really to use quotes from Isaiah if I were giving the gospel or explaining salvation. But now I can, because I actually studied this. I'm saying, yeah, I knew it was here, but I never thought of it that way. <laughs> so listen to this. Here, the greatest invitations to salvation are written hundreds of years before the fact. So in verse 1 and 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. There's no other Savior. So look unto me, just look unto me. Like Israel had to look unto the serpent as a foretaste of just looking to the serpent, and you will be healed. And it says here, uh, and, and this is, um, get the verse here. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Ho! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I don't know what other translations say, but the King James Version says, Ho! Everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. And he that has no money, come and buy and eat. Does that sound familiar? And buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me, hearken diligently unto me, and eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now you can immediately think of the New Testament where you find these exact concepts and passages, right? All right, we're going to wrap up shortly. We've got 20 minutes, but we'll wrap up shortly here. Isaiah is the only biblical book to mention and describe a specific class of angels known as the seraphim. Now, we talked about this a long time ago, that there are different classes of angels. And I, I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. But if we were to understand that God, when he creates creatures, like we can see in the animal kingdom here, they're creatures built for different purposes. And that's one of the reasons why God said that they should create or procreate after their own kind. And we're not supposed to mix DNA. 
That's one of the reasons. Because with every type of being he creates, the human being being the pinnacle of that creation, right? Not the strongest, not the fastest, certainly not, not the most long-lived, right? Especially after sin. But we are not even the most intelligent. But we are made in God's image specifically. So we have a physiology and we have a mind, a spirit and man. And then when we are blessed with salvation, then we merge that spirit with the Holy Spirit. No other being can do that. And that's why the angels themselves, we know in Scripture, say what about the angels? They marvel at this thing called salvation. They don't understand how this is all working. And yet, they've been around before even the first human being, and they still don't understand the dynamics of all this. Why? Because they're not made in God's image, and they can't understand into that level. But there are different classes of angels as well, and that's the point. So I'm going to read to you Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And this is just a sample of seraphim, where it's mentioned. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Now listen to the description of this, this type of angel. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him, this angel that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now we look at this and just to make a point here that I see, there's a couple of different things here. They can cover their face to hide themselves. They cover their feet and they can fly. I'm not quite sure of how all that works, but there's specific functions for all these different wings. And the one thing that they seem to be doing is praising God all the time. Now, is that, main, is that their main task? I don't know. But I do know that there are other angels who come as messengers. These certainly don't do that. And they come, like Michael's an archangel, and he does, he's a messenger, right? Gabriel's a messenger, rather. Michael's the defender of his people. So they have different functions. And you, know, you notice that in the book of Daniel, when we see Daniel praying, and, and an angel is dispatched, which is arguably Gabriel, we'll just say it is, right? But who, that he, he said, your prayers were answered as soon as you, you asked, but it took me time to get here because I was fighting the Prince of Persia, who's another spiritual being, an evil one, right? Probably a fallen angel. But you notice that the, that angel is not a seraphim that came. It was, it was a different, so you could see. So I'm just saying that this is something here, but why was a seraphim used in this particular case, which we're getting to right now, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it could be that they're seraphim, too. It could be. But, but you're right. It's the same quote. So is that what they're built to do? It's fun to speculate, but I think the, the scriptures give us nuggets here. And the, Okay, so verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, if you think about it, just as a point, when other human beings we see in the Bible have met angels, did they say, Woe, I'm a man of unclean lips? They collapsed in fear, right? And they had to be, and the angels had to reassure them, I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here, peace be upon you, and whatever they said. But it's amazing how Isaiah's response is, I am a man of unclean lips. Is, is that because the powerful thing and the one thing that these angels were doing, at least at that moment, were powerfully praising God? And, and the power, he said, the whole house shook. And all of a sudden, they're coming to him, and it's like, I, I can't even amplify my voice to praise God. Or, or who am I to be such among praise? And, and here's God filling the temple with his rain train, and here I am. I not only can't praise him, but I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm evil. There's I mean, a there's a, right, exactly. And, and these angels were, were praising God. I mean, all of that to me shows me, to me, the value of because we'll read the rest of it and I'll tell you what I'm saying I think we'll stop here tonight but I want to because this is important I think to what it shows here he says and I said I woe is me for I am undone totally undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts then flew one of these seraphims to me having a live coal in his hand which he had taken from the tongues from the altar and he said, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Look, behold, this has touched your lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and your sins purged. That's a miracle right there. Right? Unearned righteousness sounds prophetic, doesn't it? 
Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now you think of this. This man is so convinced that now he is positionally clean and righteous. After being undone because of his unclean lips, all the seraphim had to do was to touch his lips, and he was convinced he was righteous. Just like we, when we have Jesus' shed blood. Right? Same thing. That's right. And it's only because God declared it which makes it so. But he took it so seriously. And, and imagine, imagine that at just that time, God is looking for someone to send on his behalf. Why don't you send the seraphim? They're pretty powerful. You don't have to send me. So it's the same thing in the church. God, why did you choose me? Blessed are the feet that bring the good news. You didn't need my feet, but yet you chose me. And first you had to cleanse me. Positionally righteous. And, and my job then is yes, I know I'm a sinner and I'm a worm and all those things, and that's true. But I see from the scripture, my, my final point here, just like Isaiah, when God says, declares something is clean, oh, didn't he say that to Peter? When he declares something has been cleaned, you have, and I have, and Isaiah has, no right to dwell in my uncleanness. Right? And that means I need to be functional and need to be sent, and I cannot be sent if I'm always in a guilt mode all the time. And that's the point. That's why short list with God, forgiveness, repentance, when he brings something to you, because he is still looking for someone to send. And how many Christians are paralyzed because they cannot go? Because they still say, woe's me. Can you imagine Isaiah saying after that coal touches his lips, no, woe's me. And God's saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? No, no. Uh, who shall I send? I'm talking to you. No, I can't. No, we can't. You know, amongst this praise by these seraphims, I can't. Uh, just use the voice I gave you. Praise me with what I gave you. It can't be enough. That's why I positionally declared you. And what you're basically saying, Isaiah, if that was his response, was you don't trust me and you don't even like the fact that I love you enough. Right, right. Amen. To be bold. That's why we're... And that to me was to end this conversation, right? That's right. And, and, to, and to go boldly. I mean, really think about it, right? I'll tell you a quick thing. And if something does come to say, you're right, I do have that weakness, but I'm a new creature. Right? It's not even right, but it's, you're right. It's, and, but the thing is, is the weakness is because we are scum. We deserve nothing but death. We deserve Satan nothing but... Right, and Satan wants it that way. Exactly. So we have everything stacked against us, including our human nature and our fallenness. And, and, and this is the thing that we're supposed to work through. This is the goal, to get past that, to be in what God says we are. That's what's hard. But, but think of this, right? It says clearly in Scripture that we're all going to be judged on, on how we handle this word. I mean, even to handle this word is, is a phenomenal it's even more than a blessing. It's, it's a responsibility. It's something like, for instance, there's a vault of gold, a vault of something so precious, a vault of all the knowledge in the world, all the knowledge in the universe, and I could let you look at it, but then I have to kill you. It's that precious, right? But God says, and I'm not only going to let you look at it, I'm going to let you handle it. It's something so precious to me that even I'm careful with my word, right? God never, his word never goes out and comes back void, Right? very much. I didn't even think of that. Right. It's right. right. It was right there. Uh, this, you were talking about ways of witness. There's some way of going to speaking Isaiah 55. Since the Lord while I may be found, fall upon him while he is near. Perfect. And it goes right into that. And then at the end it says that his, his word, my word, that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me. No, I didn't even know that. Without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Whatever kind of thing like that. So she went and said, I said, women's group. 
Her ears perked up. No men? You don't have a men's group? And I said, well, there are men's groups. Well, why would she say something like that? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure whether, you know, sometimes I wonder if she's trying to trick me. So I just, you know, said, no, there are men's groups. However, this one is for women only. And I said, and personally, for me, I think it creates a more intimate setting where women can be authentic and who they are in Christ. Good. You're planting these seeds. And they, you know what? That's all you have to do. And she didn't get argumentative. You know, yeah. I just let it drop at that. Right. She asked me what I did. That's what I did. And I answered her questions. Right. And that's good. She didn't, and, and you didn't proselytize it no. more than, than, than could be absorbed at that moment. Yes. And you don't know what God's and doing. I don't yeah. know what God's doing other than there's a reason I've been with her over right. a year. Right. Right. So. Who shall I send? Yeah. Depending on where he wants you to send and why. I mean, and you never know. Right, and 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 really, that goes along the same lines as because this. Because hell was not created for us. Right. Yet there are people, for whatever reason, that are so in love with their sin or their will or. Well, they want to be part of the anti-kingdom. I mean, if you look at what hell is, it's the kingdom that Satan wants, but it's the anti-kingdom, and all of the subjects. And there are not, you know, if you look at the amount of people in this world, for all since Adam and Eve and everybody. If you look at the percentage of people who willfully want to be disciples and, and of Satan, or or his chief of staff like Aleister Crowley did, I mean, right. the, the the actual overt Satanists, Satanists, yes. there aren't that many of them, no. but all have sinned and fallen short of the of glory of God and and, and are headed toward hell because they, you're either going to be of the devil or of God. Okay, but there's only one way to go about it. So there's going to be no excuses. We see in the Book of Romans, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that. Satan wants a kingdom and he shall have his kingdom. That's why his motto in his occult world, this whole thing he's built for him, is as above, so below. Right? It's, it's, it's a bastardization of God saying, like in, in, in Jesus' model of prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can see the relationship between that and the antithesis of that, which sounds similar, but it's the opposite. Yeah, it's the As message. above, so below. It's in the message. Bible. It's in the message, right. Which, where did that come from? It does say it like that, right? Yeah. yeah. The occult, occult way of saying it, As above, so below. And it, if you see how subtle he is, but it's the opposite. That's why in the Freemasons, in the temples of the Freemasons, you have black and white squares. It's the merging of opposites. It's as above, so below. It's the reflection. I mean, it's all of the same kind of antithetical way that God's things, God works, right? So if we have an antichrist, which is going to be the anti-savior and the anti-controller of all, that's what this is about, Satan's going to get an anti-kingdom. So there will be people, you know, there are some people who say, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. They want to be part of the anti-kingdom, although they have no clue of what they're saying. So where you have heaven and what heaven is under the rulership of God and all of the people who start in the physical millennial kingdom, and we know that that's when we're going to rule and reign with him there, but we're also going to be that positionally in, 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 in heaven, but the rest of eternity, we don't know how it's going to work out. But Satan is going to be the God of his own kingdom, ruling and reigning in hell with all of his subjects under him in their hellacious ruling and reigning with him in hell. That's why this is the same thing. Satan is going to get what he asks for.